This month we are going to be talking about women. And who doesn't want to talk about women, right? Come on now. And who better to talk about women than Pastor Peter? That sounds weird. But anyway, let's talk about women. In fact, this is going to be our last Sunday because next week um, we're actually going to be having Legend. You just saw his video He's a spoken word uh, artist and a rap artist as well. And here's the really cool thing is uh, many of you know Emily Wafer and she works for the Boys and Girls Club. And the last time we had Legend here, she was like, this would be perfect for the Boys and Girls Club. So she said, can I get all the Boys and Girls Clubs together as much as I can and bring them here and we'll do like a conference with them, learning about his arts and his skills and stuff and I could teach all these boys and girls and then on Friday night we'll just do a big blue egg concert and I'm like, absolutely, you'll be bringing as many young people as possible to to this place, we would love to do it. So um, you're welcome to come as well, we'd love to invite you to come out, it should be packed, it should be a lot of fun but at least we're getting to reach out to new families, how cool is that? That's a cool thing, isn't it? That's it. That's the type of church we are. That's the type of church we are. A few years ago, my mother-in-law dragged me to a women's conference. And when I say dragged, I mean against my will. And my father-in-law was there, am I right? That's right. And my father-in-law was there. And my my brother-in-law was there as well. And I remember we were all looking at each other going, why are we here? Because, and it's not because we can't be taught by women, we're not that type of guys. It's like, uh, are we talking about women's stuff? Because if we are, we're not looking for a gender change today, at least. And um, um, uh, so, anyway, we were there, and there were some interesting speakers, and there were some other eh, type of speakers. Not, not because they're, you know, there were women, just because that's the way it was. Some of them were Christian, there were actually many of them were Christian. I think it was a Christian conference, and there were some that were kind of Christian, kind of type of thing. And, and, and that's fine with me. I actually like listening to non-Christians, but, but you could tell the difference between their attitudes and their spirit. And there was ones that were, that were, they were talking about, you know, about trying to empower women. And, and, and inside of you, you were like, yeah, well, I, really, I really believe in this. This is about promoting women to the next level in our culture. And it was like, yeah. And yet there were some others that when they were speaking, it was like there was a militantness with them where it was like, and we've got to find equality and we've got to make sure that everything's equal and we've got to tell them they're wrong and they're wrong. And inside of your spirit, it was just like, nah, that was a turnoff. Because it's just not the Christian way, even though there might be some Christians that do things that way. It's just, I don't think it's the Christian way. But after the conference, it really made me start to ask a question about, are churches operating like they should concerning women? Is our church operating like it should when it's concerning women? Before I came here to America over 20 years ago, I went to Bible college and I got a degree in theology. And my tutor was uh, a really well-known woman uh, amongst missionaries. And she had, uh, her and her husband had served as missionaries in uh, the Philippines for about nine years. And um, she was a fascinating woman and she was really intelligent and intellectual. And she was a passionate woman as well about evangelism and seeing people saved. But there was many people in the Bible college that were uncomfortable with how she spoke. They were uncomfortable with the authority that she moved in. And not just men, but I'm talking about women as well. And I believe they were uncomfortable because of the traditions of the churches that they had come from. Where in many churches, men can only be the leaders, men can only be the pastors. The women can be the, the, the baby church leaders, right? But they can't be the main church leaders. They, they can't be on stage. Women can't teach men. 
Hopefully we have kicked that belief to the curb in this church, right? And if you haven't noticed, we don't actually agree with that. But I remember the, the tension that sometimes it would create and even, you know, even sometimes the classes we'd have, we would talk about women's role in the church. Here's an interesting statistic from you from the George Barna Group, and it's this. 55% of the church are women, right? 55% of the church are women. But here's another interesting statistic. 91% of pastors are men. Does there seem like there's an imbalance there? Maybe you're comfortable with that. Maybe you're not uncomfortable with that. I think it's interesting perspective to see, is that something that is okay? Is that something that only men are choosing and women are not interested in? Or is it because we have created an atmosphere within churches that say that only men can lead from the stage? These are the type of questions I believe that we need to start asking. We need to start asking because I believe the church should be leading by example. Now, I'm not trying to get here and say, ah, we need 50% pastors and 50, uh, of women and 50% men to be pastors and it has to be equal. I don't believe in equality of outcome. I believe in equality of opportunity, but not of outcome. Because if we're going to have 50% uh, male and female uh, of leaders in the church, then we'd have to do that with bricklayers. We'd have to do that with roofers. We'd have to do that with uh, nursery workers. We'd have to do that with every industry that's in culture. I don't believe in that, even though that's certainly the type of conversation that is in our culture right now. But what we do have to do is examine ourselves and ask ourselves the question of what are we doing as a church? How do we operate as a, as, as, a, as a group of Christians? And the only way we can really understand that is maybe to look at scriptures and understand how does the Bible talk about women? How does the Bible portray and treat women? Now, if I look in the Old Testament, I'd have to say, oftentimes, not very good. Sometimes it was good, but sometimes it was not very good, and oftentimes it was not. In fact, women were treated as second-class citizens. Women were treated as property that could be traded between one man, between another man, or from, from the father to, the, to the, the, the potential owner, and that there would be money, or there'd be a dowry, or there'd be something that would be actually put down in order to take her. Women were treated as expendable beings. They were treated as trophies to win. They were treated, I believe, as victims of polygamy. Now, the question I have was, when you look at the Old Testament, was that God's way? I mean, I can understand why pre-Christians and atheists look at the scriptures and go, if that's your God, I don't know if I'm down with that. Did God really endorse that type of culture? Was he okay with that? Here's the flat answer to that. I believe the flat answer is no. Why? Because love is not that way. But neither does love demand that you have to operate God's way. If God is a God of love, then he has to give you the freedom to love him or to not love him. He has to give you the freedom to follow his ways or not follow his ways. That's what true love is. If you force someone to do something, they're a robot. But because God loves us, he gives us the free will to love or to not love. Because it's in the Bible does not mean that he actually endorses it. But there has always been one tripping point that I've had as a pastor. And I'm going to give you a potential answer to that problem. But I, I don't know that I have all the answers to this. But here's the problem I've always had. The problem I've always had is, why did God bless polygamists? If you look at Abraham, God went to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make my covenant with you. 
and I'm going to make my covenant through you. You'll become the people of God. You'll have multiple generations. And then through you, a Messiah will come, right? That's the, the blessing of Abraham. And it says that we are inheritors of the blessing of Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3. And yet Abraham decided, okay, let's make this happen. And he took his wife's slave girl, impregnates her because his wife was too old, old to have children. And then decides that the blessing would actually come through the slave girl. And you look at it and go, is that okay? Well, we know it wasn't okay because it wasn't God's ways and it caused a lot of conflict between the people that came out of, of the children that, that were born from him. We know that. But what I do know is this. I know two things. Number one, I know this, that when God makes a covenant with you, he doesn't break it. You might break it, but he doesn't break it. He made a covenant with Abraham and he didn't break it, even though Abraham decided to do things his own ways. God didn't endorse polygamy, but I do believe that he doesn't break his covenant. Moreover, he hasn't broken his covenant with you, and you've sinned. You become a Christian, you become a follower of Christ, when you have not been become perfect, you have not done everything well and perfect in the way that it should be done, and yet God has not broken his covenant to make you a son and a daughter of God. That's how good God is. So when we look at the Old Testament, we can't say that that was God's ways. God's way is not in the mistreatment of, of women. Because something's in the Bible doesn't mean he endorses it. Here's the biggest caution I would give to us as Christians, and it's this, that we mustn't allow our cultural nearly arrogance to think that we are somehow superior to past times or past cultures. We can look at things in the Old Testament and go, oh, no, I don't like that and I don't agree with it and I'm completely against that. Fair enough, I would agree with a lot of the things you would say of what you're against, but to put ourselves in a superior position to think that we have become more progressive would be crazy because we're not as progressive as we think we are. Look at the devaluing of marriages that are in our culture. In our culture, 50% of marriages fall apart. In the church, 50% of marriages fall apart. We haven't made ourselves more progressive. We've even got to the point where we've devalued life within the womb, where abortion is a part of our culture. And I can't endorse that because I believe that God is a part of the whole process of life. And when we take away the power of a, of, of, of a child within our womb uh, to be able to exist, I believe we're going against the ways of God. We've even devalued sexuality in our cultures. Men could be promiscuous, but women had to be uh, above the fray. They had to be perfect and pure so that they wouldn't be called a bad name. Well, now we're in our culture where it's like, no, women can just be like men, but sexuality has now lost its sanctity. It's now become a commodity. Now, I am absolutely for respect and equality of women and increasing, but here's the problem. As equality and respect for women have increased in our culture, so has broken families, so has depression, so has loneliness. That doesn't mean that equality is to blame for that, but it definitely means this, that equality has never been our answer to the problems in our culture. It's not to say we shouldn't do equality. We believe that, that that's a part of the way of God. But I believe this, that we can't fix culture by doing things like equality and fair rights and, and, any, and, you, and you, you can't tell me what to do type of attitude. The only way we're going to change ourselves is by following Christ. As a, as a Christian, I can't believe any other way. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes but to the Father but through me, I have to believe that. I don't have a choice to think that there's any other way. 
And so it's on us to embrace the ways of God. And if a person chooses not to believe or, uh, or to follow the ways of God, we should stop expecting that their life should be better. We should stop expecting that they'll actually uh, 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 live a normal, uh, a normal godly life. If a person doesn't subscribe to Christ and they don't live in a righteous way, don't be shocked. Do not be shocked by what culture does. Do not be shocked by what politics do. Do not be shocked by what you see on TV or on Facebook or on YouTube or whatever it is that you watch. If they're not Christ followers, they're living the way that their father has designed for them. The father of this world. But if they're Christ followers, then we must operate in a completely different way. And I say Christ followers because Christ, I believe, came for two reasons. Number one, he came to seek and save of the lost, right? He came to die for us and we know that. But the other reason of why he came to this earth is so that he would show us the ways of the Father. You see, people in the Old Testament were struggling to figure out how to follow the Father. They needed an earthly example of how to do it. That's why Christ became one of us who was both man and God, and he is now our example. So here's my question. How did Jesus revolutionize life for women? What did he do to show us the way of how we need to change the way that women are treated in our culture? Well, there are four things that I want to put to, put to you. Four different areas, and within those different areas, forgive me, I have a ton of scripture, and I've taken as many examples as I could from, from the New Testament. We'll, 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 we're going to race through this as much as I can so I can make sure that we finish on time. But <clears throat> there are so many things that Christ did that I just didn't think were worth leaving out in any capacity. And the first one that he did was he changed the way that women were treated in public. He changed the way that people were treated in public. And the first one was, he actually spoke to women in public. Now, there is no shock in this room right now, right? Why? Because we talk to women all day in public, right? That's, that's what we do. It's part of our culture. It's no big deal. But back in that day, it was a big deal. Women couldn't speak to men. Men couldn't speak to women in public because it was thought of as a very taboo thing. There is even cultures today where women have to be completely covered from head to toe and they cannot interact with men because it's taboo to their culture. I've been in India where, where women will be around me and they'll, they'll, they'll always bow their heads and make their eyes look away and they'll, they'll only do this and, and they can't speak to me, they can't touch me, they can't connect with me because their culture demands that they have to be beneath me. When Jesus spoke out to the, 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 the widow that had lost her son, it says, and as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. This is Luke chapter seven. And she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was there. She was in, in, she was in full view of all of the public. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Now, we always focus on the fact that he raised, her, he raised her son from the dead, but he spoke to her in public. That would have been a shocking moment in that culture back then. The other thing that he did in public was he called a particular woman, a daughter of Abraham, and in Luke chapter 13, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a woman that was, uh, that was crippled, and he healed her in the temple, and this, this, this priest came up to him, and he was livid, and he's like, you would do this on the Sabbath? You shouldn't be working on the Sabbath, and you would even do it for a woman. 
Then he said this, he said, he, he told a story and then he said, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Look at that, he called her a daughter of Abraham. Now we read it and go, no big deal. But what we're doing is we're reading it with Western eyes in, in 2019 when it was written in way back when, 2000 years ago, in an Eastern culture. He had never, no one had ever called a woman a daughter of Abraham before. Not even in the Old Testament. Because women weren't worthy of being called daughters of Abraham. You could be called a son of God. You could be called a child of God, but not a daughter of Abraham. He decided to go, I'll take your, your legal uh, 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 synagogue rules and I'll take it to the next level. And I'm going to call her someone who's worthy of healing more than you are. I'm going to call her a daughter of Abraham. I love that he did that. Talk about a revolutionary in his day. Another way that he treated women in public was this. He made a Samaritan woman the first evangelist to our people. Now let me give you a quick overview of who Samaritans were. Way back in the day before then, hundreds of years, it says that uh, the, the, the Israelites had turned against God for so long that God decided that he needed to crush them in order to bring them back to him. So he allowed the Babylons to come in and to, and to, to defeat them and then take them as slaves off to Babylon. And in that day, it says that some of the young men abandoned their wives and their children and they ran to the hill countries and hid in the caves. And when the Babylons had taken all their, all their people away, they came down and found that everyone was gone. So now they didn't have any wives and now they didn't have any children. So they decided to go interbreed with other countries that were beside them, other people groups that were around them. And they took wives from other countries. Now the scriptures had already said this. God had said, I want you to stay pure. I don't want you to marry any other nations yet, right? And so what they did is they married other people. And then years later, when the Babylons released the Jews to come back, that's where we get the story of Daniel, etc. in the Old Testament. When they released the Jews to come back to Israel, they came back and found their brothers had interbred and they said, we can't have anything to do with you because you've broken the ways of God. That's who the Samaritans were, right? So when Jesus was walking along through the Samaritan country, where Jews always circumnavigated Samaria in order to not have to bump into them, he came across a well. He decided to walk through their country. He came across a well and he was drinking. He wanted to get a drink and there was a woman there, a Samaritan woman. Now think of this. He talked to a Samaritan. They didn't talk to Samaritans. He talked to a woman. You don't talk to women in public. Even she said this, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She knew what her position was. And the fact is, what he said was, you're not just a Samaritan, and you're not just a woman. You're even a woman that's had five husbands. The only reason you're out here in the middle of the day is because you're reviled by your community because no one got water during the middle of the day because it was so hot. Now, he never said this. We just know this culturally. You don't go get water in the middle of the day. It's too hot. And he said, you have to be here because this is the only time you can be here when no one else is here. And she was amazed at who, at what he thought about what he knew about her. And he knew that she was, that he was someone special. And he revealed himself as the son of God to her. And then it goes on, it says this, and many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified on his behalf. That's significant. He's not just talking to women. He's not just talking to Samaritans. Now, 
He is employing them to speak on his behalf. I don't know where you think of yourself in culture or in your family or in society. Maybe you don't think of yourself as someone great, yet we have a quality in our culture. But you yourself, you feel like a Samaritan woman. You're maybe not as smart as you want to be. You don't have a great degree. You don't have a great job. You don't have uh, some great position in culture. You're the least of your family. You've maybe had lots of failures in your background. You've had multiple marriages. And who are you to be sent by God? But the fact is, God is just looking for someone who will say, yes, that's you. If you will say yes to God, he wants to send you as an envoy on his behalf to tell others about the kingdom of God and about how good Jesus is to bring us back to the Father and that all the blessings of the Father can, be, can, can belong to them now. You are their envoy. Hello now, come on. You are their envoy. It doesn't matter what your position is. Take yourself up a notch because that's what Jesus is doing with you. Here's the second thing that he radicalized and revolutionized in that day. The second thing he did was Jesus defended the dignity of women. The first one I saw was this. He actually destigmatized menstruation. In those days, for a woman to go through her time of the month, she literally had to leave the city. Get that. Imagine, woman, you would have to go leave the city once a month now, some of you might be like, that's a great idea. <laughs> Can we go to New Smyrna Beach? That's a great, I like that. So, you mean, so, so let me get this clear, Peter. For one week out of the month, I get to go on vacation and leave my children and my husband behind? I am in with that. Can I hear some amens? All right. But it wasn't that. It was a rejection. Because when a woman was having her time of the month, she was considered unclean and she couldn't touch anything that would therefore be touched by other men. Even if she held a cup and given it, given it to the man and served him or something, he couldn't touch it because he would then be unclean. Then he would have to go through a cleansing ceremony in order to be acceptable by, by God. They had come up with this whole thing. And this woman who should have been out of the city she came into the city because she had heard about Jesus and how he had healed people and there was crowds that were all around him and he was already on his way to heal some other person's uh, child, uh, some other person's daughter actually and she had snuck in when she shouldn't have been in the city and she reached out to touch him and suddenly he goes, someone touched me, right? And, and, and his, friends, his, his friends are like, everybody's touching you, man. What are you, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. Power actually left me. Someone had enough faith to draw something from me and it picks it up in Luke chapter 8, verse 47. It says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she wanted to be unnoticed. So she wanted to be not seen because she knew what the consequences could be. She came trembling and fell at his feet. She had to beg for mercy. Don't kill me. Don't stone me, please. I know I'm not meant to be here. She had an issue for 12 years of blood that she couldn't stop flowing. And in the presence of all the people, it says, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, not woman, not reviled person, but daughter, probably held her hands, her face in her hands and said, daughter, your faith has healed you, not mine, yours. Go in peace now. What type of a man is this? Can you imagine people standing back going, we know who she is. Whoa, 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 whoa. She is untouchable. And yet Jesus wanted to be touched by this woman. I love how he just changes everything here. The next thing that he did was he protected women from unjust legal laws. There was a woman that was caught in adultery 
And she was dragged in front of Jesus and they put a test out in front of him and said, hey, she's broken the law and the law says she should be stoned. What do you think about that? Because they knew what type of a guy he was. They knew that, she, that he stood up for women and tried to protect their dignity. And he said, I completely agree. I think you should go ahead and do that as long as you haven't broken the law as well. But if you've broken the law, who are you to throw a stone? We should be throwing a stone at you. And it said that they left one by one, dropping their stones. And he turned to her and said, you're still in sin. Just because they don't have the right to, 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 to curse you and to kill you, you're still in sin. Stop it. Go and live the life the way the Father wants. He protected her. I like to think, and here's, this is just my opinion, but I like to think that he learned that from someone. I believe he probably learned that from his father, Joseph. Why? Because Mary was pregnant before she was married. She should have been stoned, and he knew fine well that he should have been dead. He should have been aborted as well, but he knows fine well that he was living life, and his father defended him. His father defended his mother and he wanted to do the same thing for other women as well. Wow. The last thing of how he defended the dignity of women is that he gave honor to a woman to prepare him for the cross. He was at a party with a bunch of, you know, hobnobbers and this woman came in and she started to, she had a, she had this, this jar of nard, they called it, and it said that she, she, she anointed him, there's a beautiful smelling uh, nard and oil and just anointed his body and then she washed his feet and she was uh, crying tears over him and, and, and it says that the Pharisee of the house said this, if this man were a prophet, Luke 7 verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of a woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And he said, yeah, but she gets something you guys don't. I'm the Messiah and I'm on the way to the cross. She had the revelation and the insight to see that he was about to give himself for the world. And then he raised her up and said, you are blessed. And to this very day, we are still talking about that woman. What type of a sinner was she? She was socially known as a pariah. She was socially known as a sinner that people didn't want her to have her around. What type of a woman was she? Wow. There's a great story of a, um, a very well-known uh, pastor called Tony Campolo. And he tells a story of when he uh, was, was uh, on a ministry trip to Honolulu. And of course, he couldn't sleep. So he got up in the middle of the night and it was three o'clock in the morning. And he thought, you know what? I'm hungry. So he goes down the road and he finds this greasy spoon diner that was still open. And he sits there and he gets a cup of coffee and a donut. And uh, the guy behind it, you know, is wiping his hands. Uh, Do you want some donuts? And gives him a donut. And he's like, oh, that's a horrible place. And, and then suddenly these three hookers came into the restaurant. And they were yabbing away and really noisy. And he's like, this, this, is, this is an interesting moment, isn't it? Pastor found in a greasy spoon restaurant with three hookers for, for, for dinner, you know. So, so he's sitting there thinking, this is a really weird moment. And he said, then there was one girl and her name was Agnes. And she said, you know, it's my 39th birthday tomorrow. And the other hookers went, so what do you want us to do about it? You want us to celebrate? You want to throw up parties? Who cares? No one cares about your birthday. You're a hooker. Get out there and make, make your money. Get back to your work. And after a while, after they had gotten a cup of coffee and left, he sat there and he asked the guy behind the counter, he said, Harry, he said, do they come in every night? And he said, yes, they do. And he said, how cool would it be if we threw a party for that, for Agnes? And Harry goes, I think that would be a cool idea. And then he calls his wife and he goes, hey, Joan, come out the back here. This guy wants to throw a party for Agnes. And she goes, that would be a wonderful thing. She is the sweetest girl. She really is. 
and he said, okay, if I buy all this stuff and I come tomorrow, can we kind of make it onto a party place? Because if they're going to come tomorrow at three o'clock in the morning, we'll just throw a party for her. And, he, and they, they agreed. So the next night, he, had gotten the, he got the streamers and he put them all up in the, in the, in the, the greasy spoon and, and they were all waiting and the, and the wife of the, of the chef had, had put the word out and it was all these other street workers that had come that night and they all packed in and thought, oh, this is going to be interesting to see what happens. And sure enough, at three o'clock in the morning, suddenly Agnes and her friends come in and they shouted, surprise. They started singing happy birthday to her and tears were just streaming down her eyes because she had never had a birthday in her life before, she said. And they brought out the cake and put it in front of her and said, blow out the candles, blow out the candles. And then Harry said, if you're not going to blow the candles, I'm going to blow them out. So he blew them out and said, okay, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And she said, can I not cut the cake? And I said, well, why wouldn't you want to cut the cake? She said, well, I really want to show my mum this cake. I just lived a couple of doors down. Can I just, I'll just be back in a few minutes. So she got up, took the cake and she walked down a few doors to go show her mother the cake. Tony was in the, in, the, in the restaurant. He was standing there and he's thinking, this is kind of awkward, it's silent. And he said, and I did what every pastor did. He said, well, can we all pray right now? And they said, they all went. Mm. <laughs> and so he said, Father, I want to pray a blessing upon Agnes. I pray, Father, that she will be restored to who you think she is and everything that has been stolen from her and everything that has been taken from her for all the men that have used her, I pray, Lord, that you would fill her once again with knowing that she is a daughter of the Most High. And then he said, amen. And the chef spoke up and he said, what type of pastor are you? And he said, I, I don't know why I said this. And he said, I just said, I'm the type of pastor of a church that throws parties for whores at three o'clock in the morning. And then Harry said this to him. He said, there ain't no church like that because if it was a church like that, I'd be going to it. <laughs> and I wonder if there is a chance that the world is not seeing an example from the church that is like Jesus, that is like Tony, of how we treat the low and the base, how we treat the worst of our culture and our society. We are blessed to be in this room right now. But what do people know about us? Do they know us as people who are radical like Jesus and how we actually reach out to people who are the pariahs of culture and society? The third thing that Jesus did was he made women his disciples. He literally taught them as disciples, the story of Mary and Martha, and he went over to them as, their good, as good friends. There was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he was very, they were very good friends with them. And he went over to their house, and he sat down, and Mary sat in front of him and said, teach me, Lord. Mary was in the kitchen, and she came out and went, she should be in the kitchen with me. Mary needs to be working with me. Why is this a significant moment? Because men were expected to be at the feet of Jesus. They were the one that was expected to be the disciples and the students. Women were expected to be in the kitchen. Our cultures are often still that way, that women still can't be considered worthy of being taught. But Jesus said this, he said, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. She has taken something that is way, she's decided not to settle for the cultural norms and the cultural positions that has been forced upon her. She's decided to, to reach for something greater and Jesus was done with it. The next thing he did to make women his disciples was he literally made them his disciples. Many of them traveled with them. Now, some of you are thinking, no, 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 there was only 12 disciples, right? No, there was 72. 
Later on, after he had 72, he gave this hard teaching about, well, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't be a part of me. And 60 of them went, this is kind of weird. We're not a part of this. Thanks very much. Only 12 of them were left. And he said, are you going to leave me? And they said, we got nowhere else to go. You're it. That's why we ended up with 12. But later on, after he died and rose from the grave, it says that those 60 actually came round and came back again. Look at that in Luke chapter 8. Verses one to three, it says, the 12 were with them and several women, Mary called Magdalene, from whom several demons had gone, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. What does that mean? They were rich women. Boom! They were hashtag balling. How many of you want to be rich women? Well, that's disappointing. You're not just looking to be rich women for the sake of how well you can dress. You're looking to be rich women for the kingdom of God. Imagine, imagine getting to be the provider for the vision of the house of God, for the vision of the kingdom of God. That's what those women were. Are you one of those women? Is that in your heart? If it's true, then step up to it in the name of Jesus. Stop telling yourself you don't have a right to do this. You absolutely do have a right to do this. The other way that he made women, uh, the other way that he trusted women is in the fourth one is that he entrusted women to be his first resurrection witnesses. And this is the dropping the bomb right now, right? This is the one that is like, my brain's coming out. I need some duct tape to try and keep it in, right? This is significant because we look at it and go, yeah, but what's the big deal with that? In those days, women couldn't be trusted to be credible witnesses. Now, there are many who say, no, 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 listen. We know that we get the whole Jesus thing and the gospels, but there's no one rises from the dead. He probably died. Then all the cowards that were his disciples who ran away and hid away, they suddenly came out after 40 days and went, is it okay? Are we cool? Is no one trying to kill us anymore? All right, all right, guys, let's get together. Let's put a plan together and let's pretend that Jesus didn't really die. Well, no, let's pretend he did die, but he actually rose from the grave and then he went up to heaven and no one can see him because he's now in heaven. We'll just tell everybody that, right? How are we gonna do that? Well, the first thing we'll do is we'll actually write four gospels, right? The four gospels, this story, very few stories are in all of the gospels. This is one of the stories that are in all of the gospels that women were the first ones to witness that Jesus was alive. And what we'll do is we'll write that down. But wait a second, if they were trying to do that and they were trying to fake us out that Jesus actually died and rose again, then they used the wrong people as the witnesses. But what it does tell us is there are a massive chance that this is entirely true, that Jesus did die and was raised from the, from the dead. And he used woman first. Why did he use woman? Well, I've got a theory. I've got a theory that sometimes, and there's two things I think we need to learn from everything that we've talked about today. The first one is this. I believe that being the underdog makes you a better vessel for the glory of God. Proverbs says this, that God looks to use the weak and the base to dumbfound the wise. You see, no one was looking for women who were following Jesus to try and kill them, what to suppress the rebellion that they thought was coming about. They weren't looking for women that they thought was gonna, they're gonna start a revolution. No one was looking for women to start revolutions because they were the underdogs. They were put in their place. If you've been an underdog in your life, you need to start seeing yourself as the envoy of Jesus Christ who has not been looked upon, has not been attacked, but is the secret agent to go do things that no one else can do. 
Being the underdog is not as bad as you think. Be blessed. Be excited that you have been rejected by the world, that you've been rejected by your family because what God can do with you is way greater than what anybody else could do with you. What God could do with you will outstrip anything that you could have done for yourself through money, through education, or through social status. The second thing I believe that Jesus did is that he didn't come to make a feminist revolution. He didn't come to make a political revolution. He didn't come to make a war revelation. He started, he came here to make a heart revolution. This is why we can't force others to change their mind. That's why we have to lead by example. This is why we can't fix culture by ourselves. We can only follow Christ. At the end of the day, if we're going to see revival come to this town and to this city, woman, you've got to rise up. Men, you have to become the protectors of those women if they've risen up or not risen up. You see, the only reason why I believe that Eve Eve fell to the deception of the serpent is because Adam didn't speak up. Listen now. Most think that Eve was with the serpent by herself and Adam was somewhere else. And he just stumbled in and went, what is that you're eating? And ate it as well. But the Bible says he was there beside her right beside her. That tells me that everything laid upon the shoulders of Adam, not Eve. Adam had the first conversation with God, not Eve. Adam was the one that got the instructions about the tree, not Eve. And yet he didn't speak up. Men, we have to stand up and speak up for the protection, for the elevation, for the promotion of the women that are around us, our mothers, our daughters, our grandmothers, our teachers, those that are around us, the way that we speak to women will elevate them to the place that they're meant to be. We've got to start speaking out just because we're silent, not because we're not saying things, we're not saying bad things, that seems like that's us doing our part. No, being silent is not good enough. We've got to speak the words of the Father to these women. Why? Because we're never going to see revival get to the place that it needs to go because men can't do it themselves. Women have to do their part. Adam and Eve were one. We are one together. We have got to make this happen. We are the body of Christ. Come on, let's stand up. Let's speak up. Let's make this happen in our community. Let's stand this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you would stir us up to start speaking great things about the women that are around us. Father, stir us up, Lord, to start speaking into into every woman that we see. We start saying the things that we see, that the Father sees, that Jesus sees, and we're gonna start calling it out. You're a daughter of Abraham. You're a vessel that is ready to be an evangelist. You're a vessel that is ready to be a provider for the kingdom of God. You are one who is gonna carry the greatness of God. Forgive us. Forgive us, Father, as men who have been silent. We don't want to have the curse of Adam to stay silent. We want to get up. We want to stand up and we want to speak up. Not in a militant spirit, not in a demanding voice that makes everyone else change, but just in the words of prophetic words of speaking out what we see. I see the Father. I see the Father in you, my precious sister in Christ. I see the Father in you, my precious mother of Christ. I I, I bless you now in the name of Jesus. I bless you that you have been called. You have been wonderfully and fearfully made by the Father's hand. You've been called for greater things than what you've ever thought or ever imagined. And in the name of Jesus, I speak 
those words upon you, that they would get into your heart, take root, and that you would flourish in the name of Jesus, that it would come forth. And all God's people said, amen. May God bless you and keep you.